Welcome to another episode of On the Edge with Eddie, Detangling Black Identities. I am your host, Eddie Etsy. I am so excited you're joining our journey to explore all the different shades of blackness, have real conversations and discussions, and just learn along the way. Our conversations, stories, and discussions are not meant to degrade, discourage, or prove a point, but instead exploring black identities. It's about learning, ex uh, empowering, and giving people a voice to tell their stories, and even at sometimes be a voice for those people. I am super excited to have back Dean Wing. Uh, again, we started a conversation with Dean Wing last, uh, last episode, and it was absolutely magical. And I, like I said, when you are in the presence of Dean Wing, you do not want to leave. And I am learning so much, and I hope everybody else is learning a lot. And we are just going to dive right into the conversation we started from last time. Dean Wing, thank you again for joining us. I am super excited that you are here to teach us and uh, help us learn because we have a lot of learning to do as a society. Thank you for Thank joining you. us again. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me back. I'm delighted to be with you again. Thank you. All right, so I'm just gonna dive right in. Um, last time we were talking about spirit injury um, and there's another concept that you talked about that you know um, really grabbed my attention and that is the multiplier effect. Um, now, I'm going to read a little bit from um, some of your reflections, and then we can talk about what the multiplier effect actually is, because again, I, I, it's, it's mind-blowing. So from one of your um, reflections, you, you had mentioned constant overt and covert discrimination, both individual and institutional, augments the lifelong spirit injury of a Black woman. I call this the multiplier effect. I have come to the realization that it is impossible in some hypothetical way merely to remove a layer of myself in a subtractive fashion. I cannot view the world differently, stand it as if I were a whole white male. And then, so, so it was interesting when I read that and then I read another piece and you have said that um, the, you noted the dual discrimination you felt as a black female, right? So to you, that discrimination was multiplicative, not addictive. In other words, I am a black, I, I am black times a woman every day, not black plus a woman, which implies you may be able to subtract an identity. The discrimination I felt, the discrimination I felt was against me as a holistic black woman. Okay, so let's talk about this multiplier effect. I mean, it, it's 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 actually so true, right? Because your identities are part of you. They're not. You can't remove identities. Um, tell me more about the multiplier effect. Yes. Um, well, nowadays we we all of us talk about intersectionality, right? So it's like the intersection of your identities. So this theory, uh, multiplier effect, is linked into intersectionality. And even though these were based or written uh, or theorized by Black women, it applies to everyone. So every day, each of us is a holistic person. 
And that holistic person will include a race or ethnicity for you. It will also include a gender, right? And actually I've extended way beyond what I, I wrote in that piece you're writing, because not only do you have a race and an ethnicity and a gender, but you also have a class status, sexual orientation, uh, disability status, parental status, color. Um, you have at least 16 or 17 of these different identities. And so you have to look at yourself as each one of them, you multiply, right? Because it's, so it's one times one times one times one, that's still one. Yeah. Versus if you were adding one plus one, it would be as if you could kind of subtract out your gender or subtract out your sexual orientation or subtract out one of these identities, which actually no one can do. Right. And so it's important to, to think of everyone having the identities and not just, you know, minorities or women. And also to think about what are your identities uh, that you have and what does it mean? Because right. it could be some of your identities lead you to privileging, right? And other identities simultaneously lead you to face discrimination. You're still a holistic you, but it could be the fact that you're black times a man will lead you to face certain discrimination. Yeah. Uh, and it might lead a white man to face certain privileging. Um, but at the same time, there could be some privileging because let's say one of your identities is your class status. You have an a level of education that uh, it has led to you having a certain career, uh, a certain income level, et cetera, that could give you privileging yep. at the same time as the other, some other identities may lead you to, for instance, be more likely to be arrested by the police. Right. They don't care you know, what your role is at the University of Iowa. They'll just see you as black man and think, aha, that means you're you know, criminal or something like that. So right. I called it the multiplier effect, but it's the, the bottom line is just to get everyone to see that um, you have the identities and you can't minus them out. So nobody can say to you, okay, pretend today you are not heterosexual. Right. Yep. Well, you can't do that because that's integrated into what what you are every day. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that makes a lot of sense because you know, as a as a math guy, um, if you talk about one plus one plus one plus one, you know, one plus one plus one is you know three, right? And you're one individual, so it's not like you have like multiple um uh human beings so multiple like I, I don't know if you have like multiple personalities or something like that they can just take and add them together right like you said you're one individual and that individual has the multiple identities and that makes who you are right and you know like for me for example i am a Ghanaian um american and so i have the freedom to go to ghana and back as like, as, much, as as long as i need to mm -hmm. um, and then i also have the sort of the option of depending on what space i'm in i can speak different languages right mm -hmm. and you can't tell me that well you know eddie english is not your first language so i'm going to take that away from you 
right? And then you can just speak, you know, just Ewe, which is your first language. And that's what you speak all the time, you know? And if that happens, when I get to different spaces, I can't just speak Ewe to you because you don't understand, right? <laughs> and so to me, you know, the, the multiply effect actually makes a lot of sense to me. Um, so I'm going to go a little bit deeper because it's something you said. So somebody will look at you. And so their one identity they look at you as is you're black, right. just black. They don't know what kind of just black. Yep. And then you said you were from Ghana. So then it's like, okay, then you're really African hyphen American right. along with a whole bunch of other types of people. But then you said Ghana. Well, if you were in Ghana, mm -hmm. you, it's not, you're not just Ghanaian. There's many different ethnic groups within Ghana. Right. So your identity would not just be Ghanaian. It would be what is your ethnic group that you're a part of that, you know, it's it's part of your holistic identity, but you you that ethnicity will have meaning in Ghana that does not necessarily have that meaning if you're here in the US where they're just saying, oh, well, you're just black. Right. Uh, yep, so yep, that's important yep. too, to know the nuances. Uh, so like one identity uh, is your color, your skin color. And it could be, uh, well, unfortunately it, it appears that for every, almost for every group, the lighter skinned ones of the group get treated better, mm. but what is considered light? So right. one group uh, light for another group that could be dark. <laughs> so how that person is treated depending how they they walk uh, could be very differently because one group is looking at them as a dark person right uh, and another person is looking at them as oh you're you're light <laughs> so let, let me I'm, I'm gonna switch gears a little bit and again because you had mentioned this I, I want to explore that option a little bit right so um, the light skin, so there's there's the variance of, you know, there's the, the different shades of blackness, right? So there's the black, um, there's the East African black with, you know, truly dark skin. Um, even in Ghana, we have, you know, black dark skins, so and then we have light dark skins. It's interesting because, you know, in my tribe, Ewe, you know, so a lot of the women are light skin, right? And they refer to them as Yefu, which translates into white, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, I, I'm trying to figure out some of the privileges that you talk about um, as a, a lighter um, black woman, what sort of privileging do you think lighter skins uh, black individuals get within the United States that maybe darker black skins like myself, we don't actually receive in the United States? Yeah, um, I'd be interested to hear this answer for your group too. But yeah. the history of the U.S. is, uh, you know, you got the lighter skinned people historically because mainly white men, you know, were raping their slaves or their servants, creating these biracial people who could end up being called mulatto, quadroon, yeah. octoroon, etc. And that uh, these uh, women were, were, their features often were more like a white woman and so then they were considered to be prettier yep. than the women who were not mixed or who were not lighter. And so prettier, uh, they've done studies, there's books, The Color Complex, et cetera. People who are viewed as prettier in a society, they are treated better in school. The teachers think they're smarter 
they have more privileges, they get better jobs, they get paid more salaries. So if you're talking about the female part of it, black women who are lighter or who considered more white looking, right. um, they will get, um, they, will, they will have um, more access to more men. They will be seen as more desirable Right. Um, they will, there are black men who will look at them as, oh, you're prettier. They will prefer a light skinned black woman to a darker skinned black woman. And this is still going on now. I'm not just talking about something. No, it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. But it's still, unfortunately, quite clear that a lot of the um, lighter women continue to um, have access to not only men, if they're heterosexual, but resources uh, as well. And so you could have two light-skinned African-Americans marrying each other and they, you know, some of them may be able to pass as white or almost white and get privileging from that passing. I had that in my family where we had relatives. We have relatives now, some of whom are blonde with blue eyes mm. and you couldn't tell them from any white person. They know right. they're black. If you ask them, they'll tell you, but you wouldn't ask them. Right. And yeah. so they definitely uh, have privileging. Something I noticed when I went to the uh, Ivy League type of schools, right? Mm -hmm. I'm a graduate of Princeton uh, and I, I speak at these schools that the black population in those schools is lighter. They are literally more of them are lighter skin. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. the students who go to um, schools like University of Iowa, where there's a lot of people who are first generation right. college, um, and it's stark. I mean, if you got on a plane and you, I did one speech yep. and I go to Harvard and the next day I come back, it's so stark. Mm. That doesn't mean there's no dark people at, you know, at these schools. It just means right. the proportion of lighter people um, is, is stunning. And that's representing generations of privileging of mm. access to education um, that was not and has not necessarily happened um, to some other people. How about schools like Howard, right? So, um, yeah. Yeah, so let's talk about Howard, for example. I mean, because Howard is, you know, for all purposes, sort of a black school, right? I mean, yes. And so in those spaces, and Howard is an amazing school from what I know, yeah. um, how does privilege work at spaces like Howard? Yes, um, Howard is probably the most famous HBCU, mm -hmm. uh, they call them. And uh, I've had several relatives go there and my grandparents, you know, went to black colleges and my, you know, so I have lots of family members that went to them. So what used to happen is the same thing. Uh, the discrimination on the basis of color in, is within the black community. So it used to be the lighter skin black women at Howard, you know, would you know, do better, the more of the men would like them than the darker women. Right. And they used to have in the sororities, they would, you know, be looking for lighter, the lighter skin people. And they used to have in some of these, not just there, but what they call the paper bag test. If your skin was darker than a paper bag, right. you couldn't even be admitted. Wow. So of course, uh, uh, officially, that's wow. not, yeah. officially that's right, right, right. You know, yep. not the case. Right. It's better now yep. than it is, but even today, just take something like hair. 
Mm -hmm. right? If you yep. have uh, what's, um, you know, a, a, a kind of wavy hair, kind of like mine or something right. like this, this will be called in the black community, whether it's Howard or wherever, good hair. Yeah. They'll say, oh, you're so lucky. You yeah. have good yeah. hair. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> so right. you're saying that your hair, that it, that's bad hair. And that mentality is still today in people's minds. And you can see that all over the media and elsewhere where there are people who wear weaves, wigs, things to make their hair look straight like a white woman, right? you know, and that that's considered beautiful and ideal. And yet we're fighting that because black hair, no matter how it is, is beautiful. And there's so many different ways you can wear it. But the fact that still so many people are saying, well, she's not pretty or she would be prettier, right? If, she uh, had if her right. hair was this way. And that's why there's a giant wig and weave industry. Yep. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah, Brazilian hair. Control it. <laughs> yeah. Black people don't even control the industry. Right. It's a big that market. Is making billions of dollars from getting Indian hair, hair yep. from India Indian or hair, China, yeah. and processing it and then selling it here for very expensive prices because that meets the the standard of of beauty right. uh, that still is in people's heads. Yep. <laughs> Even though you say now that person's that can't be their natural hair because that that kind of, that hair wouldn't go with that person, but that's what they have on because oh, this is what's beautiful. Beautiful, right? Yep, yep. <laughs> so yeah. it continues to be yeah. a problem beyond Howard, and you can see some of it uh, that might um, you know be. Uh, if you visited one of the, the black, uh, historically black universities, but I mean, you can see it right at University of Iowa or anywhere else you go. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, yeah, one of the things that one of the most things I find fascinating is sort of the, the, the women who shave, the black women who shave their heads, right? Um, and, you know, I've had conversation with, you know, some of my friends who actually, you know what, I'm just going to go shave my hair because I don't want to be bothered with the whole, you know, hair discussion. Um, and, you know, Black women in general are absolutely beautiful, especially mm -hmm. if they shave their hair, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that is just, you know, true power and beauty when you see a Black woman shaved hair and just smiling, going about their business mm -hmm. um, and not worrying about the whole like industry of, you know, sort of the Brazilian or Indian or sort of the hair that, that mm -hmm. you know, sort of other heights their face and their facial features you know um you know as much as you know with you know some of the african country or i mean for me spe specifically i can look at someone from sort of um west africa and know that individual is from ghana or nigeria or togo based on their facial features right and it looks it seems to me that you know with the whole hair concept um people are hiding or trying to hide all this like beautiful features that they have um and you know at you know at once sometime in the future, I'm probably going to have somebody that talks about just the hair and the facial structure. Um, but I mean, I think it's again, understand why people do it because of the sort of um, the treatment or the industry and how people are lured into the spaces that 
you know, sometimes they don't even know they're in. Uh, Let me right? mention something about uh, we have our new vice president, Kamala Harris, mm -hmm. right? Yes. And she, as we know, is mixed where her father was from Jamaica and her mother was from India. Mm -hmm. And her hair is straight. Right. Her yep. hair is very straight. And her features, uh, she could be Indian, right? Yep. There are plenty of Black people that look like her, but also she looks kind of Indian-y and she, will be, she would be considered beautiful under the standards we have, that she's beautiful. And part of her beauty is, you know, her, her hair and, mm -hmm. and, and her, her features. Right. And, you know, you can speculate if she had looked another way, you know, how that might have been for her growing up and, and becoming a politician. Right. Now, I was also noticing at the inaugurate, inauguration, Michelle Obama, right? right? Our former first lady, both of them lawyers, both of them incredibly beautiful women, Michelle Obama coming from the descendants of slaves from Chicago. And uh, what, I, what I noticed though, is the whole time that uh, Michelle Obama was first lady, and I don't even know before that, she always had her hair straight. She either, I don't know if she presses it or relaxes it yeah. or has weaves or whatever. So for the inauguration, you know, she, she obviously put, you know, curled it to make a big bouffant, you know, right. big kind of flowing thing as like a white, you know, how a white uh, right. yep. woman's yep. hair would be. And never in that four years did she or her daughters you know, make their hair into all yeah. braids right. <laughs> or dreadlocks or yep. any yeah. kind of, the young woman who was the poet laureate, 22 yeah. year old poet yep. laureate, yep. she had her hair in incredible braids right. and that was incredibly elegant and regal. And I was just looking at that thinking, Michelle Obama, who I love, right? Right. She never did that or her daughters. And, I, and that has to be deliberate, right? It's like, oh no, they're already yep. giving us enough hassle. I need to look a certain way. Right. So Michelle just had her birthday and on Facebook, there was a picture of her kind of interesting where she had no makeup. She was kind of, yep. and her hair was not straightened. It, right. yep. it was a natural, and it was a strange picture. You might not have even known that was her. Yeah, it was a black and white picture. Yeah, I, and I, I thought, that. Yeah. Yep. wow, is that's her. Well, imagine if she would come out with, it in some sort of natural right. look. Yeah, what? Yeah. How powerful that would be to send that symbol right. to yeah. black women everywhere. Because with, with her hair being straightened, and yeah. then here is our new vice president whose hair is naturally naturally straight. Yeah. You're 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 not getting young women are not getting a message that yeah. you know. That's why I was glad that the Miss Gorman who this is the new uh, youth poet laureate, her symbol, I thought was, That's amazing. was, was yeah. Yeah. fabulous how she uh, presented uh, yeah. herself for that um, occasion. So um, you had mentioned, you know, sending signal, right? So Michelle Obama is sort of, she is, people look up to her. She had, she has mentored the people, keeps mentoring, and she is a symbol that people look up to, right? Um, mm -hmm. And one of the other concepts that you talk about is other mothering, mm -hmm. um, which again, again, I, I see Michelle Obama as 
you know, she is she is other mothering. <laughs> I don't know if that's a, the way the right way to say it, but she definitely other mothering other people. Um, and it's a concept that you talked about, especially you know you when you started. There were in the the what there's nobody like you, right? There was no you know black female lawyer in your space, and you had to you know sort of create the way yourself. Um, but what you had wrote about the other mothering piece, and then we can talk about you know the mothering which again equates to mentorship um and you have wrote in uh one of the uh the the a piece called lessons from a portrait and you talked about the first time you walked into the our law school and seeing the pictures and you know um and you talked about you know when it was time to paint yours you're going to have um james your fabulous uh partner painted and you know that whole story but the other mothering piece that i want to talk about though is um, there's a lot of times that, you know, like we're talking about for me, for example, finding um, a mentor in my space or for you in your space might be really hard, right? Um, especially as a black, a black individual. But then you, the concept though is you need to find other people, not just in your space, uh, but other people in different spaces. Um, and before I, you know, I let you go ahead and talk, I want to read a little piece from um, your other mothering piece, um, which is one of the lessons you talk about in the lessons from a portrait. And this is lesson five specifically I'm talking about. Um, and you, you, you said, we need to be involved in other mothering, right? And so you talked about there are many stereotypes about Black women and rather, or even Black men, um, and rather than reject that image, you have embraced the concept of nurturing and extending it. Um, I am a firm believer that everybody needs mothering throughout his or her life, and I think that anyone can mother anyone else. On a professional level, this may be classified as mentoring. I could not have excelled in my career if I had not had mentoring of many people, none of them Black women. They did not exist in your position or in your space um, when I was going through the system. Um, instead, you had great mentors like Burns Weston, um, Greg Williams, Joe Knight, Dean Hines, um, Derek Bell. Um, so talk to me a little bit about um, sort of the other mothering and then the mentoring for individuals like me who, right, we, again, in the technology field, which I'm in, there isn't a lot of Black men in technology, right? Um, but your concept of other mothering is really something that, you know, that gets to me because I can look for mentors in different spaces, which again, directly or indirectly talks about the intersectionality, right? So I can look for a mentor in, you know, as, as a Christian space or mm -hmm. as a black man space or in a Ghanaian space or in a technology space, right? Tell me a little bit, of, um, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, um, you know, obviously mothering, some of us, such as myself, are biological mothers, but the concept is anyone, male or female, or any other identity, can mother people, meaning nurturing them, right? Nurturing them in their family, in their religion, in their careers, etc. And so um, you can think of yourself as someone in need of other mothering, but also simultaneously, you then start to become an other mother because even though there wasn't anybody ahead of you, like there wasn't any other black woman ahead of me, 
you then will be that person for the people behind you, the generations behind you who, and, and fortunately today, due to technology, due to the ability to communicate, you can be another mother or have other mothers anywhere in the world, right? It's not just who lives near you down the street or right. in your town or at your job. And you, you can't get, um, you can't hope that you can get everything out of one person. So yeah. as you were saying, uh, the person who uh, uh, resonates with you in your church may have nothing to do with technology right. <laughs> whatsoever. Yep. Yeah. And so don't, don't expect that it will be like that. You will otherwise feel depressed. There's nobody, there's nobody to other mother me. When no, if you, if you take, uh, so Professor Burns Weston, who started University of Iowa College of Law International program, he was a white male right. uh, and he mentored me and brought me in to University of Iowa. And, you know, we didn't share the same gender or race, but he knew everything about international law. And there were no, almost no black people, much less black women in that. So he right. could fill that space, but he, you know, he couldn't fill the space that has to do with the gender. Although he did host my uh, baby shower when I was having my youngest son. And you normally don't think of like senior white men hosting the hosting, baby shower. Right. Yeah, yep, you know, yep. This is more than 30 years ago. <laughs> right. So he was in that sense, other mothering me. So yeah. we need to tell uh, people, um, maybe all people, but certainly black people uh, look, uh, resonate for, with parts of people um, and seek their counsel on various things, knowing you can't get everything from one person. And then you almost immediately, uh, you know, already then become another mother because there's, there's kids in, in elementary school or high school or, or college uh, and in your organizations you deal with that need to see there is somebody like you and you may not feel that confident. You may feel like, hey, I'm up here trying. But to that young person, you are just everything. Everything. Right? And it can yep. boost your, your spirit, right? To feel like, okay, I'm struggling here in the work world, but you know, I'm I'm an inspiration uh, for for young people who may think tech tech is not for me. Right. Tech is for, you know, like Asian men right or something it's not something that black people do so the fact you are doing that and, and what does that mean how do you do that how do we bust in so you can other mother in a domestic context in your personal life you can do it for your career and you can do it with respect to other other countries so for instance you here in the u.s have a get, have a certain income and it would be very common perhaps uh, I don't know your your ethnicity, what, what they do, but I would think you would be expected to send resources back, yep. back home that will assist people who are not able to come to the United States or maybe don't have the education and not going to have it. So in that sense, you would be other mothering them because your resources are supposed to not just go for you to have a nice car, which, okay, have a nice car, but you know you need to send resources back and you may need to send resources back so that that cousin or nephew of yours can come over to the States if it's possible. But if it isn't, then your resources can help people over there. So I consider that help, other okay. mothering. And then I've even helped uh, the founding mothers and fathers of three constitutions yep. 
uh, drafting their constitution. So to me, that was like global other mothering, mothering. yeah, yeah. Uh, helping to cook constitutions. <laughs> no, absolutely. I, you know, and, and it's funny because you talk about, you know, other mothering globally. Um, in a second, we're transitioning to the last piece here, which is, you know, your work internationally. Um, but one thing that I do want to mention, which again, um, people might not be aware uh, or people might not think about was, again, in your piece, you talked about um, you have to be cautious of who is, you know, mothering you, right? Um, you know, and you had mentioned, again, I'm, I'm going to read from your, um, your reflection here. And you said, in other words, do not assume that someone will be your mentor or even your confidant because he or she is the same race, gender, race, gender as you, right? Um, there's all these horror stories and, you know, uh, of, you know, such things happening. But when you think about other mothering, you know, we have to make sure that, you know, when you don't just assume, right, because, you know, th there's a, a black man in leadership position, that person actually wants to, you know, be your mentor, right? Or don't just assume just because you're a woman, this, you know, person in this space wants to be your mentor, right? And that's something that a lot of people don't think about. Um, and that's something that I certainly didn't know when I first got to the United States. You know, I, when I got here, I was like, oh, you know, a black man, right? You know, uh, that's great, father figure, right? But, you know, throughout my career, I've learned, which you mentioned that, it's not always the case that just because somebody looks like you, they actually want to mentor you. And that's something that we have to be cautious about. Um, yes, and let me just, I'll say something about that. Uh, think of Thurgood Marshall, right? He was the first black uh, man on the Supreme Court and Clarence Thomas yep. who replaced him. Uh, they were both black men, they were both lawyers. Otherwise, there's not really, I mean, politically, <laughs> yep. they were totally different. So if you met them and you said, oh, okay, it's another black lawyer, right? they were, they're opposite. And so if you could end up uh, destroying your career or having right. your career destroyed because you thought, because this person had some of your identities that they necessarily would help you. And so uh, on any job, you have to be very careful to not assume, you know, just because a woman is in the job, that doesn't mean she cares or is interested in helping other women. Actually, right. it can be the opposite because since that person made it by them, you know, they think like I did it alone. Don't oh, come yep. to me wanting help. It may not be their personality to right. mentor people. And you could find somebody like that could stab you in the back yeah. <laughs> when you're thinking they should yep. help you. So uh, you yeah. have to be very careful. And some of my closest and best mentors, you know, were not people who were from my race or ethnicity or, or gender or anything else, but still they were incredibly supportive and you should have the same outlook. Yes. Yeah. I want to help uh, people from my, that have some of my characteristics, but some of them may not be who you would actually want to invest your time in because of certain opinions or values or outlooks that uh, they may have that are not consistent with what you want to use your time for. 
Right. <laughs> wow. Wow. Right. Um, so uh, let, let's talk about the international stage. And, you know, from one of your pieces, again, the portrait of um, lessons from a portrait, um, and we're talking about other mothering, um, aka mentorship. And you wrote, I have other mothered on the international level, like you were just talking about. Um, I assisted with the constitution of three places, again, post apartheid South Africa, the Palestine Authority, and the post genocide Rwanda. It was truly moment. It was truly momentous. Momentous. I can't even say that word. <laughs> to be involved with the founding mothers and mothers of such places, meeting people who have put their lives on the line for justice for their people, helped keep various issues in the U.S. academia in perspective. It was the most rewarding to be able to grapple with equality clauses that include gender and other identities something not likely to happen in the United States for, uh, for indefinite future. Um, now, so you've done a lot of work um, besides the, the, the other muttering you've done in other spaces. I mean, you specialize in Af uh, Africa and Africa, Middle East and Latin America international law. Um, you've also served as a representative to the United, uh, United Nations for the National Conference of Black Lawyers. Mm -hmm. um, you've organized election observers delega uh, delegation to South Africa and you've like taught at the, I think it was the University of Western Cape for mm -hmm. six summers. Um, you've also advised the Eritrean Ministry of Justice on Human Rights Treaties, and you've studied French, Portuguese, Swahili. You've served delegation to many, many countries, Angola, Cuba, Egypt, uh, Israel, Jordan, Kenya, Mozambique, Namibia, and the list just continues. So my question to you with all of this international experience and international spaces that you've been is, let's take that the black identities sort of in those spaces or in those countries, especially in Africa and compared to the black identities in the United States, right? And you had mentioned that, you know, grab, uh, grappling with sort of um, the, the people who have put their lives on the line for justice for their people. Um, how does that, how, I'm trying to, trying to understand how, people viewed or the social construct of blacks in places like Africa compared to the United States? Yeah, we can just, let's focus on South Africa because it is uh, very okay. uh, unique. In, yeah. in South Africa, you know, under the apartheid system, legal segregation, mm -hmm. there were legal differences between whites and blacks, uh, but they also developed a middle group, a legal middle group called colored, the coloreds. Mm. And these were people who were historically mixed, black, white, and also people from Malaysia, etc. So they're lighter in color and they have their own communities, their own language, uh, Afrikaans, um, etc. Okay. So in, a, in the US, I'm considered uh, a black American, African American. When I go to South Africa, even though those legal categories don't exist anymore, they're often still in people's heads and they're also how people are living. And so there are many people who were looking at me as a colored, as somebody from this middle group. Right. But also, they know my nationality identity, that I'm American. And so American can put you into like the white category in terms of how people look at you, what they expect of you, what they want to do with you. 
And so when I'm when I was going over there and I've been maybe 15 times, there would be some people, not everybody, but right. you know, yeah, they know who I am, uh, but these thoughts are still in their head that my American identity is over any anything else. So I'm an American coming over to help them and they're not focusing necessarily with whether I'm a black American or not, but I'm an American assisting them Right. And some of them, um, they they knew I'm from I was from the National Conference of Black Lawyers of the United States. So they know I'm from that group. Right. <laughs> and some of them know we range in color. So even though their head is thinking, oh, she's a colored or whatever. But no, no, no. She's black. Right. Now, when I go to Rwanda, they're looking at me as just often I'm an American, but I'm also to them white. It can be hard for them to see anybody right, right, in yep. my coloring at all as black, you know. And yeah. so I've been to, I don't know, how many countries in Africa where people will say, but you're not black. Right. Right. Yep, yep. <laughs> right. Right. That's right. Yep. So I'm aware of that yep. now. And that right. can be really shocking for many uh, African-Americans, the descendants of slaves like me, who right. their whole life, they're thinking, I'm going to go to Africa. I'm going to do all these things. And they land yep. and the people there are saying, yeah, but you're not black. Or maybe you you look black like I look, right. but nothing about you is black like us. You're really one of those Americans who may be rich or spoiled or whatever they think of uh, of Americans. And so, uh, meanwhile, going to Brazil, for instance, somebody in my coloring is definitely considered white. Yeah, and the only people they consider black are like dark skinned black people, right? Um, not lots of people we would consider to be black in America. They would not consider them to be black who are much darker than me. So it's interesting in one day I could go from being black to colored to white. Uh, <laughs> oh, one even day, though right. they're not legal categories anymore, <laughs> they still affect how people view people and they affect the economic level of the different groups right. uh, today in the educational levels. Uh, Etc. So in Rwanda, uh, they they socially constructed the black people such that people who were from the Hutu group, the majority group, were considered one way, and people from the Tutsi group, which was a smaller group, were considered another race. As if these two groups that to many people would just look like, well, they're all black, right? But no, they yeah. constructed oh. them, and then there was a genocide, right? To to uh, you know, over the fact that they'd been racialized in, in this way by, by colonizers. And so literally these differences can lead to genocides. And right. in South Africa, they have a problem now where if you are an African from another country, mm -hmm. not South African, uh, there's a lot of action against the foreigners, the foreign black people, people right. uh, that are not wanted, they don't want them there, you're taking our jobs, you're doing different things. And there have been, you know, um, you know, violence um, where, you know, between people over the fact you're, you're not a South African and we don't want you here.
Right, right. <laughs> and we're 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 hitting a whole bunch of subjects and topics, and just the conversation is great. I don't want it to end, uh, but again, um, I want to make sure that you know we we save time for the part three, which again, you know, we'll talk about you know um, wealth versus uh, riches. Um, we'll talk about sort of. You know, what now for the United States, we've had the first black president, you know, um, we recently just, you know, elected the the first black vice president. And, you know, we'll talk a lot about all of those things in the final um, part three of Detangling Black Identities with Dean Wang. And I am, again, super excited. I'm very honored to be in your presence to talk about all of this uh, different topics that people just, you know, have confusion with. Um, you know, again, just, you know, helping me find, you know, sort of my own spaces, my identities has been, you know, super helpful. Um, and so thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, again, you're on the edge with Din Wing. Um, I am going to close by reading one of the poems that you wrote. Um, you were in Princeton and this was way back in 1974 and you were a freshman uh, in Princeton. Um, and I, I love this poem because, you know, part when I was reading it, I was like, wow, even though this was 1974, this can actually really translate into the world today, right? Again, things have happened, but this poem is still current. Um, so again, I want to close with this poem. And then if you have any closing thoughts, you can go ahead and um, share them after the poem. But you wrote, and they dare call this America. Land of the racist pride. Look what they have done to my people. Beaten, lynched, brainwashed, abused, ruthlessly exterminated, subtle, all subtle, pushed, twisted aside, stumped on, ground into dirt, dirt time and time again. Well, now, is time for us. For God is a black woman. God is a black woman. Are you shocked? Insulted? Nervously amused? Well, beware, for this is only the beginning. We have learned well the lessons you taught us. And we, ever growing in strength and beauty, all of us oppressed, black, poor women all over the world are almost ready to topple your towers made by our sweat and blood. I say we're almost ready, but not quite. Who knows, it might be tomorrow and you will have nowhere to hide. Again, that's a piece by Din Wing. She wrote this when she was a freshman in Princeton in 1974. Now, I'm just going to close with this. That is still current. We're still fighting the fight. I mean, Black women are still, you know, they're itching forward. They, there's a lot of progress, but we're still fighting the fight. And you're right. It could be tomorrow, right? Um, and it could be tonight. Who knows? But we're fighting the fight. Any closing thoughts on that? Yes, uh, that's wonderful. I hadn't uh, read that poem in many years. And, uh, you know, it, it illustrates, you know, the struggle continues. 
Yeah. Right. We, we have not conquered these issues. And, um, you know, actually all the poems I wrote back then are all still totally relevant. And um, I'm just glad that uh, you could uh, bring that out to the, the uh, participants today. And uh, I very much look forward to joining you again uh, for the third, uh, the third uh, chapter. Uh, of our yeah, discussions. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, all right. Again, you are on the edge with Eddie. I am your host, Prince Eddie. We are detangling Black identities. Um, Dean Wing has been joining uh, joined us for part one, part two. Uh, she'll be coming back for part three, uh, which I'm super excited about. Um, thank you again for joining us. Um, you're on the edge with Eddie, detangling Black identities. Keep it real.